What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidya Tagawal, and let's get started. Today, in this episode 101, I'm speaking with Rachel Yang. Yes, we've crossed the 100 mark. I've loved reading the messages of support since episode 100 came out last week. Thank you for tuning in and being the main reason I love doing this. Now on to Rachel in this conversation. Learn about her sunrise in Melbourne, being the youngest of three sisters, being raised by her mum and securing a scholarship to attend a private school. We talk about her Asian heritage and how Rachel has come closer to it with age and wanting to always have an impact through her work, which led to spending time in northeast Arnhem Land whilst at KPMG working with the Indigenous First Nations community. And we spent a good amount of this conversation about the move into venture capital and the connection to an acting class, progressing from associate to partner at Giant Leap, second and third order effects of impact investing, key metrics, examples of recent startups they've backed, overseas inspirations, and a lot more. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Rachel Yang, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Vida. It's great to be here. Pleasure to have you on. Let's start with some fun facts to set the scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in Melbourne and uh, raised in Melbourne and I still live in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what was your first job and what do you do now? My first job, actually, there were um, a couple probably around the same time. My, my, my memory is a little hazy, but one was working in the noodle bar that my mum owned. So um, I was around 10 and doing the dishes and helping serve customers. And uh, also then I was helping a friend's parent um, test his computer game, uh, which was a maths game. And I loved maths, so it was fun for me to play around with that. And how would you describe your role now? And so my role now um, is I'm a partner at Giant Leap. So we're Australia's first 100% impact-focused venture capital fund. So we back mission-driven founders solving the world's most pressing problems. So we target the same returns as traditional VCs, um, but we ensure impact is embedded in the business model across three themes. So health and well-being, sustainable living, and empowering people. Mm, and I'm, I'm really keen to get into both those things, particularly Giant Leap and and great work you're doing so we'll get to that shortly the purpose of this show as you know is to reimagine a high flyer i wonder is there a high flyer in your life who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve yeah it's a really interesting question because i think there are so many high flyers in my life that don't get the recognition they deserve um you spoke to a few of them um as part of the podcast research um but i you know when i think about it overall i always come back to the people that are working behind the scenes, those that are supporting people to do their roles, whether it be in administrative roles and helping in the back of house and accounting and all the functions that make the cogs turn. And then also generally support people um, in, in our lives. And for me, one of the biggest support people in my life is my, my partner, David, 
who's also, well, everyone calls him Santa, not because he uh, looks like Santa Claus, but um, because uh, it's, he's got a Spanish surname that sounds similar. And so um, for me, he's, uh, he brings a lot of joy to the day to day. His daily goal is to make people laugh. Um, he's really just a, a wonderful support person. And I think when they say laughter is the best medicine, um, it, it's genuinely true from a scientific perspective as well. Um, it's supposed to increase your immune system and help with heart function and all of those things. So just having someone in my life that's really um, picks up the mood um, day to day uh, is really wonderful. And I have been told that he does all the cooking. <laughs> he does. That's another reason he is a wonderful support person for me. Um, but yeah, he definitely. This this episode's about about you, Rachel. So I'll bring the conversation back to back to you, and I'd love to <laughs> love to get into with your sunrise and your and your childhood in in Melbourne. And I understand you were the youngest of three girls. Tell me tell me about that, and what were your memories from growing up in Melbourne? So the as the the youngest, I think I was definitely lucky to have two wonderful older sisters that could support me growing up. So um, my dad wasn't around when we uh, were growing up, and so having a single mum who was working a lot um, meant that having the support of my two sisters was really amazing. Because um, otherwise, it would have been quite lonely, I think. And there's there's nothing quite like sibling love um, and support. And uh, yeah, we, so my, it was quite a challenging upbringing in that we, um, you know, had a lot of wealth really early on until I was around six when my dad actually, well, the business went bankrupt. And so uh, that was really challenging. um, And I think he ended up going overseas um, and there was a lot of challenges for him personally, but then um, my mom and my sisters and I were left in Melbourne which for me, I think, is a huge part of my um, why I'm doing what I do today. Because what happened was we were all sent to wonderful private school, but we managed to stay in that private school because we got scholarships to continue on, um, even though we financially weren't able to to continue on. And so we got support from um, the school as well as parents in the in the network, and um, we felt that the community really helped. Um, support us whilst we were growing up. And so for me, you know, I've always felt I was lucky enough to get an amazing education um, when I potentially may not have um, otherwise if it wasn't for the support of the community and the school that I went to. And so I always thought I better do something good with it. Um, Otherwise it would be a waste and um, something that I had taken for granted. So that really, you know, has led me to to work in the impact space. It sounds like your mum played a pivotal role in your life, and and I was speaking to Mel, your sister, and lead up to this, and she talked about the influence of your mum. Are there any reflections from that? Because I think growing up, you probably maybe didn't understand it as well as you probably have as you've gotten older. Were there any things you learned from your mum that really helped you, particularly around resilience and and just standing up for yourself in a in a different environment? Yeah, I think the really, I, I don't think I realised how hard it would have been to raise three girls on your own, three young girls. So we ranged from around six years old to 10 by the time she was really doing it on her own. 
and working a lot. So we barely ever saw her. And I think at the time when you're a kid, you, you wonder, you know, where your parents are and, you know, always want that kind of support. But then when you're an adult and you reflect back, she was really working very hard to support us. And so I think there's um, something definitely a lesson to learn there around resilience in being able to be in a foreign country where English, of course, was not her first language. My parents are from Taiwan. And so uh, struggling with that and then also um, trying to support us along the way. And uh, so she was working nights and just basically doing everything she could to support us. And you mentioned Taiwan and that was one thing I I was curious to ask because a lot of people mentioned that Asian heritage is something that's been close to you, but because you went to a private school and, and I was very similar, my heritage is Indian, but I went to a school in Melbourne as well. And, and I sort of felt I had to connect to another side of myself to try and try and fit in, fit in. As, and as I've gotten older, I appreciate my Indian heritage more and I want my kids to, to embrace it as well. What was that like for you? Like, was there anything about the heritage growing up that you understood or was it Australia and you were like, you're in a Western country and that's what life was? So for me, I was definitely trying to do everything I could to not be different. So I didn't want to have Asian heritage. I was Mm. trying to hide from that. So actually we were sent to Chinese school when we were very young and I just refused Mm. to engaged I was um I think I was copying off my sister at one point and I was just being uh probably a bit of a brat um because I just didn't want to be different to my friends um and I tried to do everything I could even um you know the way that I spoke and everything that I did was trying to become as white as possible if you if you will which is you know really sad um and I think for me it was trying to be a chameleon and fit in and and not look any different um and now I actually picked up Mandarin at um in university because I regretted um not Mm. learning the language when I was uh young and feel like I missed out by pushing away the culture um, of my family. And I spent some time in Taiwan. I went backpacking when I was around 20, um, all around Europe. And then I spent the last month in Taiwan um, to spend time with my family and get to know my cultural heritage. And that was transformational for me in understanding um, a bit more about what it what it's like in in Taipei where my family's from um and I funnily enough ended up uh I was going to Cambodia afterwards and so my dad said to me um you have to do some self-defense because you're going by yourself and so I ended up doing (laughs) a month of intensive taekwondo um whilst I was in Taiwan so I really with a teacher that didn't speak English so my my Chinese certainly improved a lot um and I got a bit of a sense of, of the culture there so uh it's something I I certainly regret but now have tried my best to reconnect that's amazing that's that's really cool it's a great way to learn the language I wish I had a story like that (laughs) (laughs) so I I love that and and one thing that's evident in in your points there is despite the environment you still had a lot of ambition and you were a high performer and you got a scholarship to to high school which is a big testament to to your kind of mental mindset what was your kind of ambition when you were 18 given that experience you went through and you maybe understood what your dad's experience was with business did you sort of have a view that you know you want to stay away from the business world well because I always wanted impact to be a part of 
my career in some way, I actually wanted to be a doctor. Um, and so mm. my sister has gone down that pathway. So she's a respiratory specialist, very successful doctor. And I just was copying her because I thought, oh, that's great. I can do something that makes an impact and then um, followed kind of tried to follow in her footsteps, but then realized that I probably didn't have the constitution to be a doctor. And also, you know, I really did have an interest in business. And so then I thought, you know, definitely startups were not something that was talked about. Venture capital investing was certainly not something I had any idea mm. about. And so I thought, well, maybe I can just go into business in some capacity and hearing that accounting was a good job. So I studied accounting because I thought, yeah, if I could just kind of maybe get into business and think about philanthropy later, um, then maybe that was a pathway for me. Certainly that changed over time as I realised that you could combine business and impact together, um, which is uh, what I'm up to now. But certainly at 18, I had no concept of that. One of the common themes that came up in my research leading up to this is a lot of people said you're incredibly polished. You People haven't met someone who can answer questions so accurately. And and Will Richardson, who who you work with at Giant Leap, said that that was his first impression when he met you. I guess my question is when you first started out in your career, maybe you were incredibly polished and kudos to you, but maybe you weren't. What are your memories about the first couple of years when you started in your career? Like what, what was your learning journey early on? Like, in your career and what was the biggest learnings you had? Yeah, well, um, no pressure, Will, to answer the questions with finesse. Um, early on in my career, I, I mean, the the funny thing is when I was a kid, I was cripple, cripplingly shy, just mm. couldn't even string a few words together because I was just so shy. And so I think as I've progressed in my career and through school I've tried my best to do more public speaking um and so at school it was presenting debating doing all those things and then in my early career I went into consulting and probably government advisory so consulting to government and I tried as much as I could to put myself out there and uh really aim to be open about snapping up opportunities as they arose to um, do things out of my comfort zone. So for me, it was very much about pushing myself out of my comfort zone. I also did a little stint of telemarketing um, when I was at uni. So I had three different jobs at uni, one in retail, one in accounting, and then telemarketing kind of um, working working a lot. Um, and uh, part of my training, I guess you you'd say in, in public speaking and, and um, talking to and engaging with audiences was really um, through retail and through telemarketing. And so for me, that's something that I've really valued. Um, I think everyone in their lives should do a stint in retail um, because it, it um, really teaches you a lot about people, um, but also how to engage and, and relate to, to all walks of life. Absolutely. And I, I was the same as you. I was shy growing up and working in a restaurant was my period of change where I went from being a shy kid to having to speak to customers and take orders and, and get yelled at by chefs. So I completely <laughs> connect we, to We've that. all yelled at some point in our lives, which <laughs> builds resilience, I would say. Yeah, particularly when you're young and, and naughty and, and, and bratty like I was. So <laughs> I, I want to talk about your time at KPMG and... and, and I think you did a an exchange program where you went to 
um, something called Gumach, which is an Aboriginal program up in the Northern Territory. And um, I've, I've heard that that was a really instrumental program in your learning journey. But I'd be curious about how that program came about. Like a lot of people work at a company like KPMG, but they go to the office in the city, do their job, come home and, and rinse and repeat. What was the sort of moment that led you to discover that program and, and get the confidence to ask if you can go on it? So the genesis for me was really the fact that I was doing government advisory and consulting to government in areas such as Indigenous policy and never having spent time in an Indigenous community. I felt really quite um, challenged internally, but also just it felt uncomfortable and wrong to be um, writing about things that I had no idea about. So I actually explored an opportunity that KPMG had with um, Jarwin, which is Jarwin is a wonderful organisation that's about connecting corporates and Indigenous organisations to share skills and be able to send people on secondments on a pro bono basis to support organisations across Australia. And so the organisation um, that, so I, well, I ended up wanting to go and pursue an opportunity with Jarwin because I did feel like I needed to spend some time in Indigenous communities and really understand um, our First Nations people and really connect in that way. And so I applied for Jarwin and ended up getting sent to North East Arnhem Land. And for me, that was transformational because I heard... Um, the language that's spoken in the community uh, called the Yongu language. And I realised I consider myself Australian. I was born here. I've always lived here. And I didn't understand the language of our First Nations people. And I thought it's really quite eye-opening to think about how little we know about the um, wonderful um, Aboriginal culture within our communities right here and and I would say not many people have actually heard the language being spoken of um, the Aboriginal people in North East Arnhem Land for example and so for me spending time there and being able to um, learn and be a part of that community was transformational and the turning point for me is actually a 12 year old girl died of septicemia while I was up in North East Arnhem Land And I actually got culture shock on the way home because I thought, how is it possible that a 12-year-old girl can die of septicemia, which is not an issue that, um, well, is an issue that can be treated in Australia. It's something that nobody should die of in Australia. And that, you know, happened on our own, you know, front door. And so for me, coming back, that really made me think, I need to make more of an impact with the role that I'm uh, doing and the work that I'm doing. So I really pushed to try and find uh, a new pathway for myself that had great impact. And I understand the one of the projects you worked on while you were there was actually setting up the first Indigenous own and run mine in, in Australia, which which when I was informed of that by Damien was really interesting. I, I asked him, I said, what does that mean? Like the mine does it matter who owns it? And he said, no, that actually is a big deal. Can you touch on that, particularly to educate our listeners on what that actually means when it when a mine is owned by the Indigenous people rather than being owned by a big corporate? 
So it's really about self-determination and being having control of your your destiny and really the um, Aboriginal people in that community own the land. It is their land. But mining organisations have gone in and um, taken from the land and used it for their own profits. Now they've paid some royalties and they've needed to do that, um, but it's not the same as being... Um, owned and run by the local Indigenous community. And I think that's really important to have that idea of ownership and self-determination where they can choose what happens with the funds um, and it's not just uh, funds coming in from the exploitation of, of land, really. And so that was really important um, for, for the community there and Gumach, the organisation I was working with, um, because it was the first in Australia. And so I helped prepare a kind of business case and understand what would need to happen in order for this um, organisation to exist and this mining operation to exist and what it would mean for the community. And so, you know, I think it's it's a tough one because, you know, say what you will about mining, um, but it, it's, um, for me, it was more about the fact that it was the choice of the people who owned the land to mine the land. It was their own choice rather than, you know, previously it wasn't so much about that. It was more about, you know, people coming in and making that choice and then providing royalties afterwards. So, um, you know, I think it was community-led and really important to be able to be the first in Australia to do that. And I also understand you love the project so much that, Gumach actually asked KPMG if you could come back for a for a few more months and, and work on the project by yourself. And that's particularly interesting to me because often corporates have these projects which are one-offs and sometimes going back and doing them is actually challenging. And, and, and in hindsight now that project obviously changed the trajectory of your of your career. So KPMG could say they, 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 maybe they lost you through that project. But how did you build conviction internally within the KPMG business for them to let you go off and do this project again? Was there anything you learned through that experience? It's an interesting question because it was almost not a choice for me in that I knew I had to go back. I really felt such a connection with um, the people um, that I was working with, in particular Klaus Helms, um, the CEO of Gourmach, and also working with um, Damien Messina, who's, who was up there um, working with much uh, as well. It was um, for me something that I had to do because of the the proximity to the impact that I could create. Um, you know, and for me, the fact that they um, wanted the skills that I had to help uh, drive this this project was really uh, something that I almost felt an obligation to go back and a great desire because it was really enjoyable for me to be in that community. Um, and I felt like it was uh, almost like a calling, which which sounds a bit, um, uh, I guess, spiritual, but um, and not, not that there's anything wrong with that. But for me, it's just um, not something that I'd necessarily identify with. And for me, that really was how I convinced KPMG to, to let me go back. And, and to bring the conversation back to KPMG and last question on your time there is one of the things that also came up in my research prior to this is 
you you learned a lot about how to ask for what you're worth at KPMG, and and a lot of the listeners of this show might be from different backgrounds, whether it's gender, ethnicity, or, or stage in life, and that's one thing that I think I struggled with as well early in my career, despite being being male, is how do you stand up for what you believe in and ask for what you're worth, whether it's a pay rise or doing a project or taking time off. And and I know you had a number of experiences at KPMG. Was there anything that there was one kind of insight that you learned that gave you the confidence to go, yeah, it's important to stand up for what you believe in and, and do the right thing? One of my biggest drivers is integrity and ensuring that you are doing the right thing. And for me, um, being a woman and a woman of colour for is um, you know not something that I've ever felt like was uh, particularly restrictive um, over over my career, but I guess subconsciously it probably has been. And so for me, doing the right thing is actually just um, doing what others would do in my position, irrespective of what I look like and who I am. Is if others, you know, I think um, typically you hear that men are better for uh, asking for pay rises etc I thought well, why, why wouldn't why wouldn't I you know there's no harm in asking and so I um, you know felt like I it wasn't easy but I was definitely always trying to build up the confidence and I must say I was not always successful <laughs> um, but the practice of just having those conversations and having facts behind um, the conversations to ensure that there was integrity in what I was presenting and that it wasn't just because uh, it's something that you want, um, you know, it's something that's showing the value for the organisation and the people that you're talking to. So it's always about a um, reciprocity in ensuring that it's clear that it's not just because of your own desire, it's because there is value both ways and just being open about that and trying to build up the confidence just to, show the evidence and be clear about um, where, where you stand. And so for me, that's been something that I've kind of had to build up over time, but I think it's just a matter of not letting how I look or um, what my background is hold me, hold me back. And I hope that no one listening does that. You know, I hope that they kind of get the confidence to, to really just try and put aside um, any baggage that we all have it um, we all have a lot of baggage but trying to put that aside and, and just being confident in yourself I want to take you back to 2017 when you decided to move on from KPMG and I understand you were chatting to a friend doing an acting course together and and that gave you a moment of clarity I won't answer my own question so I'll ask you can you take us inside that time what what was this clarity and and how did you decide on the next step post KPMG? So the the acting course is um, was hilarious because it wasn't um, me trying to be become a um, you know superstar <laughs> neighbours, um, but uh, it was for me a, another step in trying to hone that public speaking and and really practicing the the skill of being um, able to speak confidently. And so I ended up doing this acting course over a weekend with some friends, with a friend, um, and he, we were basically doing improvisation with a, a bunch of aspiring actors who are around 20 years old. So I was um, 10 or so years their senior and um, definitely put me out of my comfort zone. 
And during that time, we were having a lot of conversations, being very philosophical about life. And he said to me, kind of, what's, what's the actual dream for you? What do you want to do with your life? And I knew it was something to do with impact and something to do with business. And you know, I explored impact investing um, and the concept of social impact bonds at KPMG and hadn't quite landed on what I really wanted to do. And he said, well, really, what is the true kind of dream um, if you could do anything? I said, embarrassingly, um, well, you know, Richard Branson and how he's really successful and done lots of great things and, you know, become a um, very wealthy businessman. And now he's able to fund all these startups that uh, are solving the world's problems. I want to do that. So I need to make a lot of money in my career and then do that. And he said, well, actually, you don't need to do that. You can uh, uh, approach this organisation called Giant Leap, which um, does that now. So they invest in startups that have a social environmental benefit and um, generate financial returns as well. So combining business and impact together. And so it was when Giant Leap had just been created. Um, so Giant Leap was created in 2016 and then this conversation was happening early 2017. And I was just blown away that an organisation was doing this. Exactly the dream that I articulated was, was possible for me to pursue. And so I ended up applying for, for Giant Leap. They actually very serendipitously had a, an ad up go up the next day um, when, after this conversation, which was crazy. And I just applied and, and here I am. I love hearing these stories. Like we recently had Dan Madivan on the on the show who worked with you at, at Impact Investment Group and he spoke about how he decided to step away from JB Weir and how his parents had a barbecue played a big role in that and he Googled a certain definition of clarity and it had Dan's name in it. And and yeah, and it's funny how I think the learning there for me is it's not a clear sort of playbook when people make decisions. Often it is life that happens and then sort of socializing and, and acting classes or a barbecue and then you when you decided to apply for impact investment group as it was called then um and i understand you joined as an associate from if i if i've done my research correctly yeah. what was that what was that like in the first six months because as we know vc doesn't really have a kind of onboarding process and you have to sort of figure it out we came from kpmg which is one of the most structured companies in the world a really strong learning and development um, program and a team around it. What was the first six months like at Impact Investment Group, particularly as the firm itself was figuring out what the identity is? It was a very interesting transition because I'd gone from working on the Metro Tunnel project in Victoria, so an $11 billion project you know, with a huge team of people and we were running at it just working nights and just working incredibly hard and then the next I finished on the Friday and then started the job at Giant Leap on the Monday and um, for anyone switching careers I, I would not recommend <laughs> just <laughs> a weekend in between um, because it was really challenging everything was different it was a much smaller team um, the processes um, were still kind of being built and effectively it was a startup in and of itself as VCs generally are you know we're um generally small uh, teams of people um, building processes and always continuously improving. So the processes don't stay the same for a long time. It's just as they do in corporates, typically, it's constantly moving and being really agile. 
And so there was a lot of an adjustment and it was doing every little bit of the role. So it wasn't having a defined role. So you might say an associate has a general role, but was really doing everything from organising events with uh, startups and our investors and then also doing the due diligence papers and really um, running meetings and uh, meeting founders. There was so much diversity in the role that it was exciting um, and amazing to be working in the space, but also really challenging to make that adjustment from working in a big corporate. I want to come back to Giant Leap in a, in a second and talk about a few aspects of as you built that fund, but maybe on your point about joining as an associate, that's an interesting one because Again, there's not a whole lot of information online and in the industry about what success looks like to go from an associate to where you are now as a partner in in, a, in five, six years, which which some could say is, is very fast and clearly testament to how brilliant you are. But can you talk to what were kind of some of the things you feel you did that helped you gain more responsibility over time and become partner today? Were there one or two things that stand out that you think you did out of your own choice that helped you? One of the biggest things that I guess for me made a difference in this role was just throwing myself entirely into the role and really thinking with an ownership mindset, thinking that this was something that I wanted to do, not just as a a job that I would go and do, um, nine to five, but that it would become for me a big part of my life. And that's because I love the role. Um, you know, there are challenges with that because it's hard to kind of separate work and life and understand, you know, where, where the boundaries lie, because they're certainly very blurry for me. Um, but it was just a matter of being prepared to do anything and everything that the, the organization needed to be successful. So, it was feeling a strong connection with the team. The people that I work with are absolutely incredible people that are very uh, intelligent and we challenge each other all the time and we speak with radical candor. So it's about uh, challenging directly but caring personally. So that concept of really being very open. And so that was something that was part of the culture early on. And so for me, I realised that that culture was exactly what I wanted and, you know, wanted to be a part of. And also the mission was something that I was really driven by. So it wasn't that I feel like I did necessarily anything intentional other than throwing myself into it and trying to learn as quickly as possible and being really aware of what I didn't know and learning from others along the way and meeting as many people as I could in the ecosystem to really um, escalate that learning um, in a really uh, kind of genuine way by forming relationships with people that are, have been in the industry for years. So I met some, I have met some wonderful people and still to this day, uh, you know, they're close connections of mine that have helped me um, learn and, and develop in this journey. But certainly uh, I didn't have a plan at the time when I joined. I, I want to touch on the people you've met and, and, and been inspired by, and I'll put a pin on that and come back to it in a second. On, on that point about just career trajectory, particularly in VC, I think I, I want to touch on this because I think your experience is really unique and, and maybe you can share some insight for our listeners. Now that you're a partner and a big part of VC is balancing the soft human skills with the technical skills. And as we know, the feedback loops can be quite long where you might meet the next big startup, but you don't know that for, for years. So as an associate, if you bring that deal into the firm, you might not 
the firm might not get recognized for it for years to come because you might not see a, a valuation increase or, or a growth in the in the business. And now as Giant Leap's building their team, and I know you've got a few associates and investment managers, what do you think success in, in those roles now, uh, now that you look at them as a partner and they work closely with you? What do you think differentiates someone who's really good inside VC compared to someone who's not? And I, I'm not talking about founders, I'm talking about inside the firm. What do you think differentiates a high performer versus the rest? One of the strongest characteristics of someone who will do well in VC is someone who's genuinely curious and wants to get to know the founder as a person but and their drivers and what motivates them, but also wants to genuinely understand what's happening in the sector and to read widely about trends and to understand where um, there are potential opportunities. And so uh, there we, we see around, now it's around 1,500 startups a year um, come through our pipeline. And so, and we're a generalist fund. And so there are many, many sectors that we um, look across. So examples of our portfolio companies, we've invested in a company called Change Foods. So they create cheese without cows using precision fermentation. Uh, to, to grow cheese in the lab. So pretty incredible business there and really um, wonderful from an environmental perspective. And then we've got um, Sia Medical, which is Australia's largest epilepsy diagnostic service. And so when you think about the, the differences in those businesses, you really need to be able to identify what would create a good and solid business model and what's happening in the industry, you know, from health to um food um, and then really think about critically where are the opportunities here and if you don't have that level of curiosity I think you could easily just take things on face value and just rule out and say no one's going to eat cheese without cows for example because it won't taste you know just people won't mentally be able to get their heads around it or it won't taste great or anything like that whereas when you're curious and you're exploring and you're seeing that this is the way people are moving People don't want to make choices where they can help um, solve issues like climate change. And cheese is one of the biggest you know, carbon emitters through um, the way that it's produced. And this way of producing cheese um, is, you know, basically a hundred times less land, um, five times less water, ten times less energy. Those things are really um, transformational. So. I think when you think broadly um, and are curious, you can really be successful in, in VC. That's actually one of the points that Will, who, who mentioned in, in the research leading up to this, because he came from a private equity background, he found that interesting, but also sometimes challenging about VC is the way businesses were looked at and wasn't just about the financial metrics, but also post that and how it's going to have an impact on the world, particularly in the fund you're in. Um, maybe one of the things on that is I think conversation I often have with investor friends is people look at certain businesses in, in VC that there's a lot of conversation about and metrics about, particularly in the software side. But you mentioned that cheese business and even healthcare, particularly in Australia, one of the common points of feedback is that oh, the market's too small and, and we can't build a venture size business in here. You've clearly backed a number of them. Um, can you unpack that for us and maybe demystify how you built conviction in one of those businesses and, and what were the metrics you looked for and, and internally you were able to kind of get buy-in from the other partners? So we still look at the same things that traditional VCs look at, but we see things slightly differently because of the impact lens that we use. And so 
we're still looking at the problem they're trying to solve and is it painful enough to people for people to pay for? You know, what's the market opportunity? And there are very few market opportunities that are limited to Australia that are big enough for venture, uh, venture capital returns. And so typically the businesses that we're uh, investing in have the ability to expand overseas. You know, SEER uh, has just opened their office in the UK um, and, and changed their first, uh, changed the cheese companies, their, their first um, uh, market is over in the US. And so um, you know, market is a big area that we kind of look at. And then you know, team being a huge factor and can the founders scale and do they care about the impact um, that they're creating? And then really the kind of value proposition of the solution and the, and the um, traction that they've created. So all those things are the same for us. Uh, the difference is that we see opportunities where others may not. And so um, we believe that because of the climate crisis, a lot of people will change their behavior uh, and shift to more ethical um, and sustainable choices. And so we see a huge opportunity um, in alternative proteins, but also um, beyond that, uh, we see a huge opportunity in um, areas that such as, um, I guess, energy usage and shifts to renewable energy. So we've also invested in a company called Amber Electric, and they're an energy retailer that allows you access to the wholesale price for electricity, which incentivizes you to use energy when it's uh, clean and cheap. And so uh, really thinking about how people will um, use and consume electricity in the future uh, is something that we see differently to, to a lot of others um, that are more kind of traditional and not thinking about the impact. Is there an element of considering the second and third order effects when you look at those investments where something that I am curious about is could you make an investment in a company that has a benefit longer term for the climate, but short term might actually have a disadvantage for a certain part of society or they need to change some of the ways of working? How, how do you look at that? And, and maybe back to your learning journey, how have you gotten better at establishing a company that might not give you returns for the first few years, but longer term is going to change society and change the world and have a financial outcome behind it? Yeah, so we... Uh, take a holistic approach to analysing the impact. And we use the impact management project framework, which really looks at uh, a number of aspects, five aspects of the impact. So who are the beneficiaries? Um, what is the impact being created? Um, how much impact is being created by the organisation? What's the contribution of our investment? And then also what are the unintended consequences? So that piece that you're talking to around, you know, the trade-offs potentially of um, some uh, organisations that might be in the impact space, we explore that. So we've created an impact calculator, which you can jump into online um, because we've made it public so that everybody can get a sense of how we think about impact. Um, but the unintended consequences is a big part of that because we think, um, you know, the, the example that is uh, often used is uh, e-cigarettes. So when um, initially they were created, people thought, oh, great, it's not going to be as bad as smoking. It can get people to kind of shift away from, from nicotine and, and um, smoking. But actually there is nicotine e-cigarettes and 
more teenagers started smoking because um, vaping was more accessible and it was you know, fruity and uh, attractive and something that was an unintended consequence was more people actually taking up smoking um, because of the accessibility of it. And so we try our best to think about all the possible um, risks of the investments we make in the short term and the long term, because we really are in it um, for the long term and thinking about playing the long game. An aspect of that that I think a lot about as I, I spend a bit of time meeting founders and, and recently made a few sort of small angel investments of my own is doing some of the sniff tests when you meet a founder the first and second time, whether they're suitable and and, and you, as you mentioned, your mandate is very unique to to the traditional VC where they look at anything and everything and then sort of look at it based on metrics first, which you're looking at it based on impact first. Are there any kind of quick determinations you make when you meet a founder or business, whether it's suitable to go through the IC process at Giant Leap? Like what's a no, say if I come and present to you and I go, I'm building a, a media company that's going to educate people about climate change. What would be a no in that situation where you'd go, cool, great to meet you, but actually we don't think we're the right investors to partner with you on? There's an element of gut feel, which is probably often not what founders want to hear, but is the, is ultimately the um, the truth when it comes to investing in um, startups and being in the venture capital space. There's a connection you may or may not make with the founder and you are, when you're asking them questions and and that gut feel is developed over time of meeting, um, you know, hundreds and thousands of kind of founders over time um, and seeing a lot of businesses and kind of analysing various different businesses. There might not be something specific that you can, tangible, that you can put your finger on to say why or why not, um, because what we also understand is we don't know all the answers. And so we might say, one thing to a founder about why we've said no and someone else might think totally differently to us and so i think there's that element of of gut feel that um and connection with the founder that i think is that we lean into and that is really challenging so we try to be as respectful as possible and provide the feedback and and uh, be honest in in the conversations we're having but sometimes there's not a clear answer as to why or why not it's unfortunately sometimes just a gut gut feel another aspect that that is sort of tricky to ask because it's a very topical question at the moment so i want to ask you the general questions about market and, and what do you think's going on at the moment but how do you look at impact with that back to LPs, back to your limited partners? Because as you mentioned, impact and, and most VCs are, are in it for the long game, but often your investors are looking at updates and they're speaking to every quarter or, or, or on a biannual basis. What, what's, some, what's been different? And to your point earlier, where you speak to other VCs and VC friends who are in kind of traditional VC firms looking at software businesses, What's unique about the relationship with LPs for an impact investment fund versus a B2B SaaS? And maybe there's nothing that's unique, but is there anything different in your conversations with LPs where they need to really understand that long-term horizon? Not from a returns perspective. Um, You know, we're targeting the same returns as traditional VCs. It's more about the way we communicate needs to have impact throughout because that is who we are. And that's what our LPs expect us to be Uh, leading with and really talking about because a lot of them have invested because we do combine impact and financial returns and so that's something that we uh, 
keep at the forefront of our communications and ensure that it's something that we continue to talk about because that's what we love, but also what they want to hear from us. Um, the other aspect is uh, we're really lucky in that in the impact space, effectively we're providing essential services in some way um, in the sectors that we work in uh, when we think about the startups that we work with. So you know, health, um, education, uh, electricity, retailing, you know, all of those areas are areas that will be resilient in an economic downturn. So we believe that um, we're really lucky in the position we are in to uh, back these startups that uh, will be resilient in these tough times. Bring the conversation back to something I asked you earlier about the early days of Giant Leap. And in my homework, I've been told that Giant Leap was inspired by some of the overseas VCs and some of the great things they were doing. Can you share some of the examples of some overseas VCs? And obviously, Giant Leap has been around for six years now since that origination. But what do you see overseas that you feel Australia can do better at, particularly in the impact investment space? It could be something specific. It could be a broad trend. Are there one or two things that, that you think a lot about? So I think what we've realised over the years is that, for example, in the US, they are steps ahead of us in terms of the um, longevity of the, the industry. And so there's something just about maturity of, of the impact VC space that I think for us, we're, we're getting there and we, we need to evolve. Um, the... The talk over in the the US is about how you kind of um, ensure that financial performance is linked to impact in some way for VCs too. So it's something we're exploring and I think it's uh, something we'd love to be able to shift towards, but actually the approach may be more about processes and embedding processes because at the point at which we invest in startups, it's very early on and so their financial models, you know, and their forecasts are generally wrong, you know, in the first few years and so how do we expect them to put impact targets uh, linked to those financial models it's really hard to be able to do that and so in the absence of impact targets is there something else that we can implement um, that will ensure that impact is um, well that that we as a VC are held accountable but also the startups are held accountable to their their impact Um, and so I think there's probably something there around the conversations that's happening in the US about how you could potentially do that. And it's um, leaning towards implementing processes that will ensure that impact is embedded in kind of day-to-day operations and ensuring that there's accountability from that perspective. So I think that's one of the areas that's interesting to look at and explore that I think the the US is a bit further ahead than us. Um, And then, yeah, really thinking about how to demonstrate returns so I think the US VCs have done a great job at um, demonstrating that, that impact can generate returns as well. Um, I think having a few more exits over in Australia um, will help with that uh, from in the impact space. And I would recommend listeners to sign up to the Giant Leap newsletter. I, I read that often and I really enjoy learning new things and there's some really cool insights in there that are different to the traditional VC newsletters because it is about impact and climate and health and education and in a very insight-driven way. So I really enjoy reading that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. That means a lot. And um, the mastermind behind that is actually my uh, colleague, Charlie McDonald, um, who's really commits a lot to, to really making that um, a wonderful uh, publication. So thanks for the mm. feedback. 
I've asked you a number of questions about Giant Leap, and thanks thanks for answering them so nicely. But I want to bring the conversation back to you. And you mentioned earlier about other people in the ecosystem, and I love asking about who are some of the people you feel you're most inspired and impressed by. Are there any people, whether it be in Australia or overseas, that you really follow and you feel their thought process is really refreshing? Yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting question because the the people that provide me with the most day-to-day inspiration are actually the founders that we work with. And so um, you know, I'm in touch a lot with um, Gemma Lloyd from Work180 and, and Valeria as well. Um, they've created a wonderful business that really is about um, flipping the jobs model on its head to put the power in women's hands. So it's a platform that pre-screens employers before they can list to ensure that the employers support women in their careers. And I think that they're really transformational in the way that they can um, change the, they want to change systems and how diversity is viewed. And so for me, that um, day-to-day inspiration from founders and another one being um, Olympia Yager at Goterra, who's uh, using maggots to um, get rid of organic waste and divert all that organic waste that's going to landfill away from landfill. Um, you know, all these people that are really uh, were in, impacted to their core um, and their day-to-day mission, I think they're, they're the ones that inspire me um, the most. Uh, and then from an investment perspective, I think, interestingly, um, there, are, there are so many. It's, it's tough to, to name, but I think um, the ones that stand out are really the people that um, are more on the philosophical side, like Dan Ariely. Right. You know, he was talking about, I'm not sure if you've come across him before, but he um, has written a book called Predictively Irrational. Um, and it's about how we're uh, inherently irrational in the way that we behave. And so, um, you know, he was, we were talking uh, about one of his investment approaches is to invest in companies that have the best uh, reviews from an employee perspective. So the ones with the best culture will perform the best uh, financially. And so I think there's something really interesting in there um, to to consider. Mm, I I have not, and I'll definitely check that out. As as I touched on earlier, you joined Giant Leap at a very early stage, and now you're maturing as a firm. And and, and one could almost say you you might have trade-offs between working in the business and on the business. And that's something that came up in my homework was people were curious about is how has that changed some of your routines and habits where you're not just spending time with founders, you're spending time with your own team as they're growing in their own career and you're spending time with LPs and you're doing podcasts and you're doing media engagements. And how do you how do you sort of balance your time? Because uh, VC's bread and butter is external founder, but if your firm is not secure and built up internally, you can't help the external um, or the, I can't partner with founders. How, how have you sort of grown in your own kind of habits and routines and do you keep certain things sacred where you make sure they don't get dropped off? So I uh, keep Wednesdays as my no meetings days so that yeah. I can have clarity of thought in the way that I structure my days and my weeks uh, so that I can think about how to manage the operational side and manage the kind of um, business side of things and thinking about our team and how we are become a kind of great organization and continuously improve. 
uh, versus the kind of day-to-day meetings with founders and the investments and the due diligence that we need to do, um, really having a day where I can be clear of meetings that has really helped to, to help keep that balance. On the point about relationships and working with people, one of the questions I asked Will in, in the research and he said, ask Rachel because she, she'll have a better answer to it is, <laughs> I, is that is that I assume sometimes you're investing in companies where some of the other VCs perhaps don't have a impact focus the way you do and you're all in on the impacts line is how do you sometimes manage manage the differences in objectives when sitting on a board or co-investing with another VC who is investing in that portfolio as part of their diversity but you are investing because that's what you believe in through and through are there any things there about managing dynamics with other investors generally I would say that a lot of investors whilst they may not explicitly be open about the impact they are human ultimately and Mm. there is an element of caring about impact um, and how it's uh, part of the businesses that we've invested in. I think the way that I generally manage difficult conversations at the board level or where there's potential conflict with other investors is really about trying to understand their point of view. And relationships are very much about that, just having empathy for the other person and thinking about where they're coming from. And there's a wonderful book called The Righteous Mind, which I uh, think about a lot um, because it's written by Jonathan Haidt and he's a moral psychologist and he talks about, you know, really frames the book with uh, people say you shouldn't talk about money, religion and politics, but this book is really Mm -hmm. about uh, why you should and how you can. And so I really take um, a lot of insight from others when thinking about the psychology of conversations and how to relate to other people in day-to-day business as well, because it's so, we're, we're all human at the end of the day. Mm. We've got a few minutes left, so I'd love to close with a quick rapid fire final sprint. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? I would say the investment in my um, mental health um, and making sure that I can get up every day and and feel um, that I can tackle the challenges ahead. And one of the things that I did to to manage um, my mental health was actually to exercise regularly. So now there's a non-negotiable at least five days a week um, of something cardio. Otherwise, um, mentally, I definitely feel the the difference and clarity of of thought changes. One thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Well, we we actually just got a new pizza oven. Um, So (laughs) I'd love to learn how to perfect um, pizza dough. Uh, I've I've been working at it for a number of years and now I've continued to kind of refine, but I feel like I can really uh, get better at that. So I'll continue. I like it. My my <laughs> girlfriend and I did did make some dough the other week, and I was very bad at it. So, <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully, I'm sure you'll be much better at it. My our pizza was very doughy, and the, the it takes a lot of practice. Um, <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, it's something that we can maybe both um, work on together. <laughs> and last one, can you share your most publicly announced investment for Giant Leap, and what made you invest? Yeah, most recent announcement would be Great Wrap. And so mm-hmm. that's um, 
a company founded by Geordie and Julia Kay, these wonderful founders, Victorian-based, who've created a compostable um, cling film um, plastic wrap that's got an at-home product as well as um, pallet wrap. And it's made from potato starch. And the, um, the way that they uh, have tackled creating this product and creating their manufacturing facility and everything that they've done is just truly an inspiration. So they're really wonderful founders that we, that care about the impact. And that's really why we invested. Mm, Awesome business. And I have followed them for a while. So kudos to what they're doing. That's the finish line, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a real treat um, and wish you all the best. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be 1% better. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly via email or any of our social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.